Oh no. Did I lose you guys? Oh, you froze, but I can oh. hear you. I think he's you're back. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of. I don't okay. <laughs> I don't know if you're still frozen or not. <laughs> nope. We're here. That was weird. Welcome to the Poet Salon, a podcast where we talk to poets over a drink we prepared especially for them. I'm Doogee Wash Your Hands Taha. I'm Luther Joe Exotic is Racist Hughes. <laughs> and I'm Gabrielle. What day is it? Bates. This week, we're coming to you from our first ever uh, remote recording Yay. because we are uh, observing social distancing rules and staying the fuck at home. Like yep. you should be doing too, if you can. <laughs> Please stay home. Uh, on the actual episode, though, we talk with Paisley <laughs> Rectal, uh, who we had the chance to interview several months ago. We talked to her about mythology, movement, and making difficult editorial choices. Our signature drink for this episode is the Dark Sister, a mocktail of pear juice, ginger soda, and a tiny itty bitty dash of aged balsamic vinegar, just as a treat. Inspired by Paisley Rectal's poem, Pear. Paisley Rectal is the author of six collections of poetry, the most recent of which, Nightingale, rewrites the many myths of Ovid's metamorphosis. Rectal has also published numerous books of prose, including the book-length essay, The Broken Country, On Trauma, A Crime, and The Continuing Legacy of Vietnam. She has received quite literally, and I mean literally, every writing-related fellowship you can think of. <laughs> think of them real quick. I guarantee you she has <laughs> and had a poem in Best American Poetry Anthology basically every year in my recent history of being alive. Um, and currently, she's in Utah where she's serving as a poet laureate and teaches at the University of Utah. But before we get into that conversation with Paisley, we have one question to answer. Social distance Sasha wants to know. What has your relationship to poetry been like during this time of COVID-19? <sighs> okay, listen. Good. We are all poets here. I think that's clear. We <laughs> love poetry. <laughs> it's like one of our favorite things in the world. Like this is our base we're starting from. Right. But I will say, and like I know this because I've talked to you all, that like this has shaken all of our relationships to poetry. Like it's hard to know where it fits in and how, and like everything is thrown for a loop. For me personally, it's been really hard to read and write poetry, like both. It's just been so weird and hard to figure out. But um, I feel like just in like the last few days even, I've been able to get back a little bit. And I think it's because I'm in like a weekly writing workshop with a couple of buddies and there were a few weeks I just took off. I was like, I don't have anything. Um, but then I just forced myself <laughs> to write a draft. And I don't know, now I'm thinking back that way a little bit. Mm. What about y'all? I am also having a hard time uh, reading and writing. Um, I think it's worth noting, we are recording from Seattle, um, where like 
we've been social distancing maybe a little longer than the rest of the country. Um, and so we've been sort of operating in isolation and things have been sort of evolving and changing um, for us maybe a little more dramatically than other places, at least like being out in the world. Um, and I will say maybe to your point in the last couple of days, I feel like I've maybe finally just started getting used to being by myself in a new different kind of way. Um, I am, uh, I don't know, lucky and also deranged enough to like be in grad school <laughs> at the moment. So I kind of <laughs> have to read some things. Um, and that just like forces me to write. I also in a, uh, fit somehow signed up for the, the grind. Do you guys know? <laughs> yeah, starting today. Today is day one. Oh my God. Uh, Tell April people 1st. what the grind is if they don't know what that is. Yeah, it is uh, facilitated by a few poets um, Ross White, Francine J. Harris, Matthew Olsman, Noah Seltzer, and others. Um, I think this might be the largest group ever, uh, but you get put into small groups of other poets, you're sort of referred into it or, you know, it's by this, like a, a chain email, <laughs> pretty much. And you get sorted into groups and every single day you have to send a complete thing. So whether that's a poem, like a paragraph, a chapter, an essay, it just has to be complete. Um, and you do it every day for 30 days. It's the start of National Poetry Month. And I uh, signed up for it because I was feeling very badly that I had not written a poem or completed a poem in a long time. And I was like, uh, as you all have, yeah, yeah, as you all born witness to, my MO is just to like, well, I just put myself in a position where I, I have to fucking do it. So we'll that see. That is so classic you. I was That's shocked. I was shocked to hear it. And then now I'm mad at myself for being shocked. <laughs> So obvious. Like, what else would you do? Of course, I haven't, been writing, I haven't been writing poems for weeks. I'm gonna sign up for the grind every day uh, while, while in grad school. I'm top of that. While in grad school, uh, well, while working and teaching children at home, I cannot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe I'll make them write a poem with me every day. That'd be That's so the sweet. That'd be kind of fun. That's genius. Is that sweet? That is <laughs> exactly, exactly. <Torture. laughs> kind of a little bit of both. I mean, your parent is a poet and they're making you write poetry. I just <laughs> surefire we'll way to make sure they're the not poets. Uh, damn, that's um, true. To get back to the question, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I'm, I'm on. You know, I'm in the same lines as both of you. Like I, I haven't been reading or writing poetry um it hasn't been on my mind to be honest i think i wrote a, i think i read a poem like for the first time in like weeks two days ago um and i was like i'm gonna get back into poetry and that was two days ago and i've read a poem since so and i think i mean for me also i write most of my poems either in transit or in a domestic space and so i'm no longer in transit anywhere and so like that has been cut off and also I'm working from home. And so my domestic space for writing has become my domestic space for working. And so my brain can't really differentiate, uh, differentiate between writing and then working because I'm always in the same space. And so it's like, there's no space for me to actually write anything. Um, 
So that's been difficult. And I just don't, I'm not really in a creative space. I mean, my work right now is like focused on a relief fund. I'm doing relief funding for myself. And so like, I'm not really focused on like creating anything because I'm creating a thing that involves other people that's more like urgent than my own thing. Yeah. Um, tell us about tell us about the relief fund and where um, people can help. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it is the Queer Writers of Color Relief Fund. Um, you probably can just Google it, um, but it, it. I mean, I, I we'll think, link it in the show notes. I, yes, yeah. it's linked in the show notes. I don't. Know what I'm doing pointing down to me. <laughs> This is not TMZ. Like gonna be in the show notes. I don't know what's happening. Um, <laughs> um, but you can also again Google it. Um, you can also find it on shadewarderyarch.org, um, which I guess is my foundation. Um, which I guess is my foundation. I, my organization. I know. I don't guess it is. I just don't promote it like that. I just I don't know. It's kind of weird. Um, yeah, please donate. Um, I sent out funds the 31st of March and funds will be sent out on the 1st of April. Um, so yes, donate, donate, donate. Um, please, anything or share. And that has been my, my thing with poetry. Yeah, I've also been, I've been thinking a lot about um, isolation and like poetry's relationship to like, like both reading and writing poetry as a kind of like escapism. Mm. Um, or like requires a certain kind of escapism and when we are just like sort of forced to be by ourselves it just like it, it just I'm still sort of reconciling what it means to be by myself in like the ever shifting you know last couple of weeks and so it just like doesn't make sense to me in the same way um, mm. I just like requiring some sort of different kind of meaning making and I just haven't uh, deciphered it I haven't figured out how to incorporate it into poetry yet I don't know. And I don't know. I, I'm both trying to hold uh, grace that that's okay. Mm. Um, and sort of related to it, like, like maybe then my experience, like it just doesn't need to be art right now. <laughs> like that doesn't need to be like the place I funnel this like ennui and angst and like <laughs> what the fuckness <laughs> of life. They're yeah. just like they're just doing it and that's okay for now yeah i've been drawn to reading things that i normally don't read like philosophy and like books of really short prose um which is not my normal mo so i think i'm just i'm in a different headspace and that is leading me to a different kind of literary art and like that's okay, like you said, like trying to have like grace for that. Um, and also I think, yeah, poetry is usually, yeah, this retreat from other things and like this place to go deep in, like dip into an interior life, dip into isolation, even if it is, you know, communing with another voice across time or whatever. And yeah, now I'm just kind of in this suspended isolated interior space mm -hmm. and it's mm -hmm. just like that plus poetry feels incompatible too, for now yeah it's almost too much it's like it feels like um when a joke's not funny because it's true 
you know, <laughs> like, like I just can't look at it straight. Yeah, exactly. I'm just like, you know what? I see you there, but not today. We just today. can't do that today. Yeah. I think we're all in like crisis response mode too, mentally. Yeah. Like there's so much energy and focus going into just like, are people okay? What's going mm -hmm. on? And so I think like quite literally, it's hard to give poetry the focus it demands. Um, yeah, it's just too scattered. Yeah. And like also like, I don't, want to right now like i don't want to be in the poetry space right now like it feels disingenuous to the time like it doesn't mm. feel like i should be worried about writing my poems when people are literally like homeless because of this you know like it, it just feels people like people are always like that too though right yeah so i i, I don't know I, I think i just feel like from my own headspace i shouldn't be concerned about writing my poems right now like i should there's other things that seems more urgent for yeah. me at least right like for me poetry to me isn't urgent for me um yeah. and and hasn't ever been urgent for me like it's never been like a thing i have to do it's a thing i love to do and am doing it because i don't know what else to do <laughs> but it's not an urgent practice for me right and so for me in the urgent time of relief and response poetry doesn't fit into that urgency for me but also like damn hold on i also want to write a poem though so like <laughs> <laughs> like, like something at least yeah. a little something a little little tidbit of something also like also don't write notes and jot down notes for poems and so like to write a poem i have to write an entire poem like, i can't oh. stop from writing when i sit down wow. to write a poem i don't Do think i knew that about, about you yeah, yeah. Like, I, don't, I don't i don't jot down notes i don't like like i can write I can write poems like going to work um, but you write like fully formed poems, has like drafts. Form that's your time. Shit. I'm wow. like, like sitting down to type it up. Or like, yeah, I can't do notes. Like I, and like, that's also I believe in music because that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Your shit is like too fully formed and like its own. Yeah, like clearly, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, there's this pain journey going on for sure. Exactly, Wait, so yeah. have you ever had like a journal like do you write that's like not writing notes for a poem and not writing drafts of poems but you're just like here's just thoughts no about, or here's just details from my day or... mm -mm. i do that so i i do do that for like for, for prose. <laughs> i like i like have a little like sense of what it's going to be about to like come to one day but okay yeah that's also i mean those, those are also like some dreams and shit so like that's that but never yeah. like journaling like oh today was a good day you know da, 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 da. wow just, don't make fun of me <laughs> <laughs> have you been reading my journal <laughs> uh, yeah. gotcha but i want a journal i just i just don't that's hard it's hard to journal and it's hard for me to take notes so I, just, I mean, don't make yourself. I just do oh, it. I'm, I'm not. Afraid. I'm gonna forget everything <laughs> about my life because my. <laughs> but I applaud you both for doing those things. Journaling for you, Gabby, and then notes. For yeah. Um, yeah. Sure. They're fragments. Okay. Well, this is devolving mightily. <laughs> um, so I'm gonna say we should go over to our conversation with Paisley when we could all hang out in person and be cute in my living room, dining room situation. Scoot, scoot.
So you're serving as the editor for the forthcoming most recent Best American Poetry, which is a huge honor and I imagine a really terrifying task <laughs> in a lot of ways. It uh, was. There's so many poems published in America, you know, in a given year mm -hmm. and so many journals. And I just, oh, I have so many questions. Uh, what was your strategy for tackling this project? Uh, did yeah. you come away with any new favorite poets? What all did you buy online when you were stressed out? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I bought a red suit, actually, was what I did. Um, I didn't go in particularly with a strategy because I, well, I will start by saying I went in knowing I was going to fail, which is to say, uh, I think about 30 years ago, an editor of the series could reasonably say that they had read 70% of everything that was published because there was no internet. And once the internet happened and once people published in on social media, I could probably reasonably claim to have read 35% of everything, you know, just geographically bounded, not, right. <laughs> not anyone writing just in English. Mm -hmm. There were a couple of uh, Indian poets I did actually want to put in, um, but I was not allowed to put in because they are not American. Um, so they really did, they did hold me to certain things. Um, obviously, I had to pick poets that had been published in North American journals, maybe a couple of English journals if I really pushed it, and then they had to be American citizens, which was <gasps> not... I did not know that was you, part of the That is part of deal. it. Yeah, that is how they get away with best American poetry. But I, you know, there were a couple of Indian poets that showed up in Poetry Magazine, and I said, you know, I'd, I'd like to include one or two of these poets, and they said no. Um, that was the only time I was told no. Uh, so the series is actually pretty good in other respects. But I read 25 to 35 print journals a month, plus as many online sites as I possibly could, plus, so all of the, you know, Poetry Daily, Poem A Day, I know I see you sweating in terror <laughs> in there. And I used social media, frankly. I used all of you out there. Um, I followed all the poets I could, and people post the poems that they published and the poems that they like reading too. And so if I saw something that I didn't see, um, happen across my own desk, then I went down that rabbit hole too. So I tried to crowdsource it a little bit because I knew there's just no way I could possibly hit that. But that said, I've read hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of poems. And your second question is, did I fall in love with anyone? And yeah, there's a number of poets that I had not ever heard of um, there's a woman named, I'm probably butchering her name, Kate Lysurgis or Lycurgis. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, I saw a number of poems by her and I just fell in love with her voice. There was another poet named Corey Van Landingham. Never heard of this poet. Um, and I just fell in love with her. Um, I actually hadn't known Heather Crystal's work before that. There's another woman who I think I'm butchering her name, Ama Kojo, C-O-D-J-O-E. And there's a couple of her poems that I saw um, that I just was like, that's so, I just love that voice. And so, and there's another poet named Ryan Black who I'd never heard of. And I knew he must have had a book coming out because there were a number of poems by him showing up in journals. And so that was really exciting to be able to start tracking voices and thinking about um, these people I'd never met and had no investment in either way. We had not offended each other at AWP as yet. <laughs> there was no disappointment. There were no letters of recommendation requests coming across anyone's that. transom. So it was just pure unadulterated joy. Oh, I love that. That's cool. Um, I'm curious, as a poet born and raised in Seattle, 
um, and you know, someone who has family here, uh, but also writes a lot of your poems away from this place. Um, how, if at all, you find the city or region showing up in your work. Um, and if you have a sense of like Seattle or the Pacific Northwest's role in like broader contemporary American poetry or poetics. Wow. Okay. Just a little softball. A little softball. Yeah. I mean, I think, gosh, I, I know in my own work, it's shown up in terms of a kind of landscape and an ecological awareness of what Seattle has been um, and how it's changed um, its own landscape as it's grown as a city. So I have a book um, called Animal Eye and there's a poem called Ballard Locks and in mm. it I describe the ways in which the, f the salmon running have, ha that's been changed. They created the Ballard Locks in order to um, obviously move ships up and down but they had to reroute the salmon. And so I'm writing about that and thinking about my own family legacy in the fishing industry here. My great-grandmother was the first female shipwright in Seattle. Mm. My Norwegian grandfather fished up and down Alaska and then around the coast here. And then on the Chinese side, they ended up in the Alaskan canneries. So I'm aware of, like, we're kind of a deeply Northwest kind of family in that respect. Uh, I also have a poem called At the Fish Houses, which obviously is ripping off <laughs> Elizabeth Bishop, who was born today <laughs> on the day that we were recording. Hey, happy Yay, birthday, bitch. happy birthday. Jeez. One of my favorite poets ever. Um, but it also reimagines um, the ways in which the city has changed over time and the ways in which we forget how places get erased. So, um, but that's, I'm trying to think about that larger question about what is the Northwest doing in literature. And the only thing I can come up with right now is when I was in high school and I wanted to be a poet, my dad gave me a wonderful anthology, The Voice That Is Great With Innes by Hayden Carruth. And at that point, it was like every American poet. And I went immediately to the biographies in the back to find out, was there anyone from Seattle? Mm -hmm. And there was Richard Hugo <laughs> and Theodore Redke and nobody yep. else. And there were very few women and they were all called Miss, you know, Miss Moore instead of Miss Marianne, you know, uh. Marianne Moore. I know it was awful. And there were only like two or three poems by Elizabeth Bishop and like 15 by Wallace Stevens. And I love Stevens, not a problem. But I just all of that together made me feel like I was from a place that was a literary wasteland, mm -hmm. that there was absolutely mm -hmm. no one who had come from you know, my kind of background, my racial background, my gender background, certainly not my environmental background. And so it's exciting to see how many younger writers are making Seattle their home and to make this part of that literary conversation. Because for a long while, it just felt like it was New York and maybe a little L.A. and nothing else. And now it's like, no, no, there are people who are making these communities happen. So I feel like I'm just watching this evolution more than anything else. Can I just jump in really quick mm. to say when I first moved to Seattle, I lived in the Ballard neighborhood and I'd moved here to study poetry and I encountered your poems at the fish houses and the Ballard locks and they were <laughs> very important to me. And oh, so you. that's just like a little sweetness. Oh. We can cut that out if we want. But <laughs> no, keep that I in. Just had to <laughs> <keep> that in. <laughs> so yeah, you, you were like my first Seattle poet, really. I mean, like I had, I had Hugo and Rethke, but, mm -hmm. um, Right, like in terms of like a woman speaking uh, about the neighborhood I'd just moved to from 
Alabama, you know, so that was very important to me. Well, I'm glad, yeah. I'm, I'm grateful to hear that for so many reasons, but not the least of which is that I like being associated with this city. Like this city meant a lot to me growing up. And there are things that I'm doing as Utah Poet Laureate simply because of my experience growing up in Seattle, which mm. is when I said that growing up, trying to find people like me in these anthologies uh, and how hopeless I felt at that time. You know, I just know living in Utah right now, people think of it as a flyover state, a place no one wants to live except for a particular minority of people. <laughs> um, and I also know from going into these different classrooms, like teaching around Utah, there's a lot of kids who are hungry to be writers and they don't see anyone like them in the literary landscape. So I'm creating this website, Mapping Literary Utah, that has Utah writers past and present on there so people can find people who look like them and from all the different types of backgrounds. So, you know, if you're a cowboy poet, we got you. If you're, <laughs> if you're a performance poet, we got you. You know, if you're into sci-fi or romance or horror writing, we have mm -hmm. you, right? And then also sort of like the high literary writers, whatever you want to call that, you know, they're on there too. So, so I mean, it's. I think it's a lot of people feel that they don't have access to writing, that they are not allowed to be writers for whatever reason. And so we want to make sure that people know that they are there and that it's possible for them. Yeah. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about um, that particular project of like all of the writers and the art, like as a young person uh, wanting to write, to me it was the Blue Scholars. Like, mm. you know, the they they practiced their art in a way that like centered community and was like very much um like looking around them as you know they they viewed their art their art as a product of community and were in sort of conversation and that feels to me as like a thing that we are building actively right now in mm -hmm. seattle that like we haven't really had a chance um or i haven't had the i i feel like hasn't occurred <laughs> and you're sort of saying as much so it's really interesting to hear that like in Utah, you are really embarking on a project that is sort mm -hmm. of explicitly about that. And the way that even like proximity, like seeing that people around you um, are writing, right, is, uh, is, is its own, uh, uh, it's, it's cool. <laughs> it's really Thank cool to you. see, yeah. You know, it's funny because each city has, <coughs> excuse me, each city has its own ethos, its own political climate, its own cultural climate, and sometimes um, I think I'm really lucky to live in Salt Lake City because uh, because of Mormonism, uh, oddly, because mm. it has very deep communitarian roots. People don't necessarily associate that, I think, with the Latter-day Saints, but in fact, um, that's one of the tenets of that religious faith. And so community projects are really easy to start mm. in Salt Lake City. People love a community project. <laughs> we have one of the <laughs> highest volunteerism rates of in any industry, as you can imagine, in Utah, I was just um, working in the prisons, uh, doing some poetry in the prisons projects. And when I was getting my um, training so I can go into the men's and women's units, they said that there are more people who are working in the prisons as volunteers in Utah than anywhere else in the country. And it doesn't wow. surprise me because um, that's, like I said before, it's one of the tenets of, of Mormonism is they believe in sort of a public service and community service. But how that spills over is that we've got these interesting kinds of collectives. We have um, collectives for artists of color on the west side. We also have this thing called the Halophyte Collective, which is for experimental poetics that's going on in Salt Lake City. Um, and, you know, there's just like a collective popping up every time you, you look at it. And I've got a friend who's starting a new 
kind of bizarre, I, I call it bizarre, but in the best way, press <laughs> called Light Scatter Press. And she and I have been talking about, you know, her vision for the press and we're thinking about like, well, she's thinking about, I'm not doing anything. I'm doing nothing. <laughs> for the next yeah, but we're going to hold you to that. Yeah, but she's thinking about the ways in which so many of our creative projects often have um, an audiovisual component or a community program components that can't be put on the page and how do you demonstrate how do you showcase that how do you promote that and so she's trying to come up with um, different kinds of reading series or website kind of productions that allow for people to have a more interactive experience with poetry and I you know I I think that part of our community just encourages that we're always trying to figure out ways in which we're speaking to each other and if there's only one good thing about the internet I think it does allow for these kinds of uh, cross-cultural, um, cross-generational, ideally, um, communications. Hmm. Um, and so in your most recent book, Nightingale, um, you rewrite and temporize a lot of myths from Ovid. Um, and before we get into really uh, the question, can you first uh, just kind of talk about what that book is, what the myths are, um, give some background for our listeners, mm -hmm. and then afterwards talk about how your connection began uh, to these myths. So Nightingale is a kind of rewriting of many parts of Ovid's Metamorphoses. And, but it's not a one-to-one -one correlation because if you've read the Metamorphoses, you know it's a massive book and that's, <laughs> it's already insane. And also because I'm not a pagan, um, <laughs> I don't believe in the things that obviously he believed. Um, and so it's a real Judeo-Christian take on it. So instead of starting the book with an invocation to the muse, I start it with a Judeo-Christian prayer, a psalm. Um, but I do end in the ways that um, Ovid ends, which is that he's got Pythagoras speaking. And so I've got this idea to bring in Pythagoras again, or a Pythagorean way of thinking. But I was interested in largely just exploring characterization, narrative, trying to tell stories. Because I had a conversation a while ago with another poet who had said in a not terribly complimentary way that he thought I was a very narrative poet. And I understood mm. from his tone that that was a bad thing. So I was like, I'll give you narrative. <laughs> Hell yeah. I will give you I'm doubling down. We but at this table love narrative. Yes. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I love all forms of poetry. Yeah. Mm -hmm. but, but, you know, narrative is, is a particularly fun form. And I actually did think of myself as a narrative poet until I sat down to start trying to write what uh. Ovid did. And suddenly I realized, like, I was not very actually narrative. I mean, I didn't have a storyteller's pace. I didn't have a good sense of characterization. The sense of time, my sense mm -hmm. of time is actually very, lyric which is I bop around mm -hmm. all over the place so mm -hmm. I had to spend a lot of time thinking about okay how do I structure this out like how do I how do I tell a story in a way that you know Ovid was telling these stories and rewriting these myths and of course Ovid's rewriting all of these myths that he's inherited too plus he's writing in all these different literary forms you know he's got science writing he's got elegies he's got philosophy he's got plays he's got history writing and I, you know, it's overwhelming. So I thought oh, I'm, I'll just sort of cherry pick, try to have a, a variety of different literary forms in the book, but also tell, retell some of the central stories to the metamorphoses. And when I was writing these, I realized most of those stories centered around sexual violence, trauma, when people are changed against their will. And that became sort of the core of the book. But it wasn't until very late in my process that I discovered that. Hmm. Did you um, uh, study myths like in school? Like, how'd you come to like 
myths at all. I didn't study myths at all in school. So it's like a new scene thing for me. Yeah, yeah. And actually, I was thinking about readers like you a lot mm-hmm. while I was writing this because um, having taught for so long, I'm very aware that most people are not given any kind mm-hmm. of mythological education. And I was really fortunate because um, my parents... they gave me all these books of myths when I was a kid and they just kind of left me with them. And they also (laughs) had these, um, they had at this time, they had these, you know, record albums that I was listening to all the time. And they gave me African myths. So I grew up to the Anansi myths and they gave me, um, uh, the, a sort of performed version of the Odyssey. And they gave me, um, just a whole, and then free to be you and me was an album that had just come out and they retell some Greek myths. So I just listened to these on endless repeat, (laughs) endless repeat. And so that was like, those are the story stories I grew up to Mm. like a deep mythological background. And then when I was in high school, I took Latin and, um, in college I took ancient Greek and graduate school. I went back to Latin because I was a medievalist. So it was sort of like the background noise to my entire life. So for Mm. me, all of these myths were automatic. But when I was rewriting this, I didn't want people to have to know these myths. Mm. I want someone to be able to pick this book up and say, if you know the myth, great, you get something additional. But if you don't know the myth, you're still getting told a story you can follow. So that's one of the reasons why I contemporize these myths so much. So Io, for example, is a story about, in my telling, it's a woman who becomes quadriplegic. In Ovid's version, it's a woman who's been raped um, by Zeus or Jupiter, and um, to hide her from you know Juno's jealousy, he changes her into a cow. But she never actually fully changes; she's still herself. She remembers who she is, and um, so I wanted to write about an experience um, from the perspective of someone who was both themselves and no longer at some level themselves and that disconnect and that that terrifying kind of awareness of you know you've been changed but not fully so it doesn't really matter if you've read io or know that but you should be able to get that sense yeah i'm kind of curious um you know in i was struck by how much of like contemporary like family familial situations like Mm -hmm. just sort of lent themselves to like myth i'm like Mm -hmm. oh yeah that that like that predicament like could totally be the launching point for a myth and especially in hearing you talk about um recontextualizing those i'm curious like at what point that revelation sort of came to you if uh, and then sort of the responsibility like what responsibility do you feel you you owe in sort of remaking or like remythologizing yeah i think i recognize what you said kind of late in the game. It wasn't when I, until I was putting the book together and yeah. trying to figure out what things had to flow. Sure. Some part of it is determined by matching what Ovid did before. But I realized how many of the poems were actually set in a domestic family setting. Yeah. And... That's interesting. And I, 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 I sat down, I said, is this actually also a book about the anxiety of family? <laughs> um, because, yeah, I mean, there's a mother's psyche who mm-hmm. um, she's taking photographs of her son and her son falls ill and she worries that, in fact, it's her camera, her f- photographing of him in these vulnerable ways that makes him ill. Um, there's a story, Ask the Annex, about a father who returns from war with his son and his son won't stop crying when he looks at him. And mm. yeah, so there's a lot of domestic stuff. And But if you read a lot of the Greek tragedies, they are actually really bad family stories. Yeah, yeah. They are. I mean, and that's where tragedy really comes from. It's not random strangers hurting you. It's the people mm. you trust the most and that you're closest to. Um, and of course, 
the idea of the family is it's this protective space. And what we want to do as parents um, and as children is offer each other protection. And oftentimes it's that inability or the betrayal of that protection, which Mm. I think speaks to people so powerfully. The Olive Tree at Vouve. To write about the tree is not to write about the human. And yet, to see this olive split in two, or is it two trees woven into one, sinuous, long-backed, is to think of a man's thigh wound around another's, hip to hip joined at the silver bowl of bark that smells of sun and the dark oils of scalp and groin. A mouth of water shared by beings both apart from and inside of each other. Once I saw a man take another like this among the shadowed pines outside the museum where everyone knew men went to hide or not, as was their wont those days in the city when they said the men were dying and we should raise the grove to keep them out. Who knew what wind, what soil might carry? Who knows why I see these men again here, brief flare of fear and desire resurrected in this bark, Another life I can have no knowledge of except by what the tree suggests and memory, sterile, fading, dissolves into. The olive tree of Vouve has been alive 2,000 years. Olives, it seems, do not have to die. Shoots split the elder's center, feed within its roots, taking from it form, nutrient, light, taking from it skin and weather until the thorn crowns shake, lustrous, indifferent beside it. But I am not talking about the human here, not myth, not lovers, not even a man lingering in a grove at night, waiting for a friend to find or betray him. Only olives shivering in their winter silvers. How solitary they seem like this, raw-skinned, taut. Their embrace, so like our own, though I know it is not. That is actually a Seattle poem, I just realized, because the museum I'm referencing is the Seattle Asian Art Museum. And um, there's, if you know where that location is on mm-hmm. Capitol Hill, it is you know, ringed in this sort of forest-like kind of grove. And when I was uh, in college here and high school here, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, um, where that was also still part of the AIDS crisis where everyone was terrified. And it was a place where at that time, you know, men were known to go cruising. And, um, you know, I was thinking about this, when I was writing this poem, I was thinking about the strangeness of a kind of a generational shift I grew up at a time when AIDS and HIV was something that everyone was worried about, concerned about. All of us knew people who had died. Um, we lost a whole generation of artists. And now I think it is interesting to imagine how we do and don't remember, I think, 
the the loss of those people and and what that means to that generation and so um those are some of the things i was thinking about i think when i was writing that poem but it is a seattle poem in its own way that's interesting today is also the day of the reopening of the it's museum. been it it's is. been closed it's like the entire time i've yeah, lived here museum. yeah, yeah. yeah. i run by it all the time on my runs yeah yeah, yeah. another you know, another change yeah. as it were. <laughs> okay i didn't know it opened today um so at, at the very center of this book, um, you include this incredible essayistic prose piece uh, called Nightingale a Glass, which I remember vividly when it came out in American Poetry Review. Uh, everyone in my small circle of poetry nerds, um, all the women at least, we were all really freaking out about it in <laughs> a beautiful way. We were Thanks. we were thrilled by it formally um, in addition to other things, how it weaves all of its different parts with this um, unfolding scene of sexual assault with these textual analyses of Ovid's myth of Philomela. Is mm-hmm. that how you pronounce that? Philomela. Philomela. Yeah. Um, and then there are meditations on writing your own poem, Philomela, in it. Um, and just like the way those pieces weave together, it's it's so careful and devastating. And um, I would imagine this would be a difficult piece to talk about. So totally understand if you don't want to talk about it. Uh, but I would love to hear a little bit about your process behind writing that particular piece. It's formally so different from everything mm-hmm. else in the book. Uh, so yeah, if you would talk about the process and maybe why it ultimately felt integral to this book yeah um well thank you very much first of all for all of the compliments there and I'm glad it spoke to you um and and your other poetry nerd friends I mean for me it was and wasn't an unusual poem I'd been working on another kind of uh prose piece that was similar about um language and manuscripts and marginalia um but I've been playing around with that kind of fragmented form a little bit but that poem came to me in a real, I shouldn't even call it a poem. I, I <laughs> guess I'll just call it a gloss because that's what it yeah. is. But it came to me in, in a white heat. I had been writing all of these poems for this book and I hadn't really known what the book was truly going to focus in on. And I read, I wrote Philomela, which retells the myth of Philomela who is raped by her brother-in-law. And to keep her from telling anyone, he cuts out her tongue and she cannily goes and weaves a tapestry showing what has happened to her and she shows it to her sister Procne and then the two of them go on this murderous you know rampage to get back uh, and it's just this cycle of violence and voicelessness and trauma and but when I rewrote Philomela I wrote it from a more realistic contemporary standpoint which is a young girl is raped um, uh, on a college campus basically and instead of telling anyone or writing the story about it she just hides it and she never says anything and I was at a residency called Shivatella Ranieri which is fantastic everyone should go <laughs> everyone should go to this um, and I had been very frustrated with the Philomela poem I mean it had been published it had gotten you know it got into best American poetry so I thought I should be happy about it. why am I not happy about this mm. so I said well what did I leave out so I started writing and I wrote in a white heat for basically a week, um, just fragments upon fragments upon fragments, all of the things that had been left out of that poem and mm-hmm. all the things that had to sort of come through historically to 
to end up sort of not in that poem and then also in that poem, at least in my mind. Um, like I said, I studied as a medievalist, and so there's a lot of references to the other poets that have taken up that Philomela myth. And, you know, at the end of the day, the, the big question for me was like, you know, Philomela is the symbol of lyric poetry. It is, mm. you know, the nightingale is the symbol that we all go back to. We use it over and over and over again. But if you really think about where that story comes from, why? Why would that be the symbol of beauty? Mm. Why is the symbol of beauty this horrible, horrible event? Because this is what Philomela turns into. She turns into the nightingale. So, you know, I, I wanted to create a kind of genealogy of, of, sexual assault mm -hmm. in literature in that sense, which is that, you know, my poem Philomela obviously rewrites so many other kinds of Philomela poems, but where does it come from? And what does it ultimately mean that I've spent my entire life devoted to this art that is mm -hmm. um, at its root really about this sexual, you know, this violent sexual assault and a woman's voicelessness. Um, and how is it empowering as a woman writer that I get to now rewrite that at some level? Um, and yet knowing even as I rewrite it, as I tell it, it, it solves nothing, you know, that event happened. It's never going to, it's never going to go away. Um, it never solves anything. And in fact, it makes you feel better for a second. And then this is the thing about trauma. Um, and Coleridge got it right with Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. You have to keep telling a story, you know, like you, you get the, the detail right here, but you get that detail wrong. And so you're compelled to keep adding and try to say that I didn't get it quite right the first time. So it's a poem that's as much a, a sort of um, celebration of poetic virtuosity, you know, through history, but also a question about like, what is the role that poetry really plays in this? And when we're writing and when we tell students and we tell other writers, you know, write about what happened to you, do we just set people off to <laughs> repeating something mm -hmm. that never solves anything either? And these are unanswerable questions. But for me, um, uh, on a practical note, trying to assemble all of the fragments was a very physical process. I normally never do this, but um, in this case, I had to cut everything up and just keep rearranging it on the floor and just keep rearranging and rearranging and rearranging until it made sense. And then I went back to my computer and cut out things, moved things around. And yeah, it's um, it was a very physical kind of process because I actually had to see the text um, and, and move it around that way. There's like a real physical, like self, um, mythologizing. I, I feel like of that gloss that is doing like that enacts so much of what the rest of the book is doing. I, I, I just really loved it. I think hearing you like talk about even cutting it up and physically, um, doing that is really something. Mm -hmm. Thank you. It reminds me a little bit of our conversation with Quentin Baker and his, uh, process of, doing an erasure project very mm. large on walls and yeah, like physically engaging with traumatic material. Um, there's As something a way to there. Like reconstitute yeah. it or, you know, mm -hmm. it's more complex than that obviously, <laughs> but, but yeah, yeah. Yeah. In order to engage with it. Yeah. yeah. Um, to get a little uh, nerdy, mm. um, I'm curious about syntax and punctuation. <laughs> um, the I, colon, right? Well, <laughs> among other things, 
things, <laughs> among other things. Um, I, I keep returning to the two sentences in Philomela, the poem, mm. um, the sequence that's one short sentence, one and a half lines, about seven words. Uh, and then an 18 line, almost 100 word sentence has seven commas, three colons, three apostrophes, My a semicolon, God. an M dash. Dude, she's in grad school now. Oh. So. <laughs> he's like, he's like in the work right now. Yeah, you did it. I'm annotating, I'm annotating your poem uh, to write the question, is how, mm. as it were. Um, and I guess, you know, I, sort of considering, you know, the book is so much thematically about transformation um, and the sequence of those sentences, um, to me, enact a kind of transformation. You know, they're the same mm -hmm. unit, but obviously they're transformed in different ways. And then that second sentence alone is like the content of it is, you know, the transformation of art myth speaker. Um, so I guess I'm curious for you how you see syntax as a vehicle for transformation. Um, and <laughs> does the full range of punctuation, not just the colon, which I think mm -hmm. is like noteworthy, but I mean, like you also use semicolons, right? And I do. Yeah, I use a semicolon. And dashes yeah. as much as any other poet. Like, <laughs> I, like it feels like the whole, like all punctuations are readily available to you. And if that also allows like a kind of dexterity and transformation or how that maybe plays a role. That's a fantastic question. And I wish I had a better answer for it <laughs> than the, what I'm going to say, which is, you know, I, I I suspect highly that my syntax was indirectly a result of all of the years I spent actually with the classical languages. If you study the syntax of, especially, you know, Ovid or, or you know, Virgil's Latin, you've got this incredible sense of delay. You have, you know, your subjects and then a lot of different clauses and then a few direct objects and maybe to the very end of it, the verb. So it creates this incredible sense of tension where you have to delay, 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 and then you finally get it. Mm. Um, and I think spending so much time, I mean, I really learned English the way I think a lot of people learn English, which is through another language um, in a weird way where you, you, you figure out the metrics of your own language, whatever that is, when you're forced to confront another one. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I spent, I think it's natural to me now, but it also explains my love and appreciation for the work of Carl Phillips, who was also a classicist. Mm -hmm. And his use of syntax is also incredibly deliberate and incredibly about delay um, and a kind of deliberate uh, teasing, like, you know, here's a suggestion, we're going to go here, but in fact, it's exactly the opposite of that or a transformation of that. I think that there is um, something about that classical Lat Latinate syntax that does offer forms of transformation simply because there's usually, especially in poetry, so much illusion, um, so much high use of metaphor, and it forces the readers to spend a lot of time parsing each thing out. Um, and, and there's whole passages in classical Latin poetry where, you know, they just take a metaphor like fame runs tongue to tongue. And then the, the image of the fame just kind of <laughs> takes over that whole passage or a description of, the, of a hive of bees takes over an entire passage. So it really works on a level of conceit, you know, an extended metaphor and things like that. So there is um, being influenced by that. I think maybe that's why again, that shows up in this book particularly yeah. because it is speaking not just to the syntactic history that I'm attracted to, but it does offer a kind of way of reformulating even how metaphors yeah. get spun out. Yeah, in real time. In real time, yeah. 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 Um, so I'm really obsessed with how movement plays a role in your poems. Um, it reminds me of a lot of um, Bridget Bikini Kelly's poems, and not, in, not so much as how she like 
builds worlds, but in a way like narrative kind of propels your poems forward like hers. So I'm curious really, um, and also also like how your poems, how the camera lens kind of shifts from narrative to narrative, which is like, I really, really love and admire about your work. I'm thinking of the in poem. In this latest book, in this latest at least. Book, yeah. yeah. I'm thinking of the poem, um, Pythagorean poem. I was also thinking about that poem a lot. Um, so I'm really curious about how storytelling plays a role in your work. You mentioned a little bit earlier about your narrative and how narrative kind of like does that in the work, but I want you to talk more about storytelling and how you aim to tell a story and how the camera lens switches so often and transforms the narrative so much. Thank you. That's a good question. Um, so with the Pythagorean poem, there are very few poems that actually do in this in Nightingale what Ovid really does, which is pack a poem, a story within a story within a story. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I think is so masterful masterful about metamorphoses is that you really actually forget where you started. Mm-hmm. And you have to remember, like, yeah. actually, this is technically the third speaker. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm like five different stories in. Where what was the first thing? Well, you know, it's like the ultimate tangent. And um and so for Pythagorean, I really wanted to try to approximate that, like just one on one, like you forget how you entered this whole thing. Um, so, and each character has to have a separate kind of point. And Pythagoras, the section in uh, the Metamorphoses, Pythagoras is basically making a long statement about brutality and how it basically cascades down the ranks. And this is why um, you should be a vegetarian because you don't know really who you're eating because there's a transmigration of souls and you don't know who you're eating. And you know the world is just one brutality after the next. And so I actually have a line that is directly speaking to that. So if you know it, it's, it's kind of a fun moment. But if you don't, it doesn't matter. But for me, it was I worked on that poem for six months, which wow. is funny because when, you know, Nightingale of Gloss is 16 pages and I worked on it for a week <laughs> whereas Pythagoras is only four pages and I was like I'm gonna die writing this poem <laughs> um, because it was so hard yeah. to make those narrative shifts um, feel natural and effortless and so I went back and back and back to Ovid like how did he do that without it just sort of like breaking <laughs> so it was about trying to think about um, transitions I once wrote a terrible novel um, and <laughs> and it was terrible because people would get stuck in rooms and at dinner tables and they just couldn't leave you know like I could never figure out <laughs> to get someone out of the room and so for me Pythagorean was exactly that question which is how does it you know what is the tagline that that allows me to go into somebody else else's perspective so what I did was instead of it's all interior monologue right mm-hmm. so there's there really no one leaves the table technically technically plot wise nothing happens but internally so mm-hmm. much happens because one person kicks off you know a, one person's comment kicks off a bunch of thinking interiorly from one character's perspective and then something happens and then we have to see someone else's perspective on that too um but I don't know how I did it. I don't really know. I think it was just um, a lot of study of Ovid. Robert Hass is excellent at that sort of stuff, though. I have noticed. So he was really helpful to sort of figure out, like, mm-hmm. okay, how did you do that? That kind of thing. Uh, Robert Pinsky is also quite good at that. Mm-hmm. So I, sp- I spent a lot of time with those, those poets, too, to sort of figure out with their longer narrative poems, like, how did you make that shift? You know. The Wolves. It was the week of asking. 
asking to watch her eat, asking if she understood the doctor's questions, asking her to explain the difference again between wanting to die right now and dying later. The tumor making certain answers unquestionable. I watched her point to the incense dish from which someone swept all the ashes up, asking if she recognized us, because that is what the living want, thinking it is a sign we have been loved. But the answer was a summer drive, a mountain, piles of leaves beneath which a wolf slept, suckling her pups. Some deaths are good, and it makes them hard to grieve. She was, at times, in great pain. We wanted her to die, too. That was important. But first, we wanted her to remember. From the bed, a finger pressed into its pile of leaves, gray haunch, unmovable ashes. I didn't want to disturb their tableau, she told us, and drifted off, and we did not know the meaning behind this. The wolves must have looked so comfortable to her, wordless, and in this wordlessness, perfect. Did she want to go there too? I could point to the image and say, my father must be in there, my uncle, or the wolf is you, you are still the mother, as if necessary to name that self at the end of its world. An animal cry memory. That was our selfishness, as death was hers. She insisted upon it, and why not? It was good for me to get a chance to know you, she said, who had known me my entire life. Then the pills, a small handful, crushed into juice. She was happy then. We all were, or said we were. What is the difference now? Thank you so much. Oh, thank, thank you. Thank you, Paisley, for coming over to hang out with us and for inspiring me to scour the internet for my own red jumpsuit. Listeners, we love you. We hope you're staying at home, taking deep breaths, washing your hands a lot, and staying as sane as is possible in this time. If you're looking for a fun, germ-free activity, or even just a good five-minute distraction, might I suggest leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a little review? You can also follow us on Twitter at Poet Salon Pod and send on your poetry-related questions, ideas for how to stay entertained while stuck in an apartment, and haikus about your nemeses, etc., to thepoetsalonpod at gmail.com. Only send them if you have multiple nemeses, please. Yes. If you have one, we don't want to hear from you. No. Ever. A flock of nemeses. <laughs> a murder of nemeses. Murder, um... Oh, oh. I like spaghetti, 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 spagh
Fetty and spaghetti, Fetty and spaghetti, Fetty and spaghetti, cause my crew rock steady. Fetty and spaghetti, Fetty and spaghetti. Yo. Ooh, chi wally wally, ooh, chi bang bang. While the world is falling, we can maintain full in origami making crane cranes got a thousand wishes on my brain brain i put salt in the water when i'm cooking up the pasta trying to keep me quiet but you know it's gonna cost ya cause i cook them proper redder than a lobster go make but my mama was a monster you wanna weaponize this gonna show you these hands gonna take on these streets gonna show you who's man's cause my crew mob steady fatty and spaghetti fatty and spaghetti fatty in the i'm not doing anything for anyone fuck everyone that is is my goal yeah i'm doing less i'm doing less that's all i want to do less you're an inspiration in so many ways yeah (laughs) no i felt so bad i was at a school recently and this young woman um came up to me we were all sort of sitting and just having cocktails and I was said, well, I'm about to leave this party. Do you guys have any questions about the professional life, whatever? And so they, they'd, been, they'd been very quiet the whole time. And so then she said, how do you stay so prolific? And I said, I don't want to be prolific. I was like, none of this was planned, and it's a nightmare, and this should not be your goal. So...